Well, science tells us the Earth at the equator rotates at 1,000 miles per hour. It's moving, but we don't feel it. And it's an example of how we don't always see or feel things as they are. Our perception is not always accurate. When it comes to matters of faith, what is your prayer this day? As I think about my prayer, I love Chris Chong's advice. Believe God enough for it. Believe God enough for it. For it. As we're in Advent, we're going to look at a very special story in the life of David where he takes on this same sort of ministry we see Jesus doing worldwide. And you'll see in David's story not only the impact of Christ, but also the place that we play in that story as well. In fact, if you go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, Peter actually, when he is explaining to the crowd about Jesus, They want to know about this man who has risen from the dead. And Peter in Acts chapter 2 says, David said about him. I'll give you David's words in a moment. But Peter reaches back to say, here's what David had to say before that first Christmas and the reality then of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. E.W. Kenyon put it so well, our faith is measured by our confession Our usefulness in the kingdom is measured by our confession. Sooner or later, we become what we confess. So as we think about our confession and the things that we say, the things we believe, the things that are on our minds, we enter into the busyness of the Christmas season and with the trappings of the holiday aspect, we want to make sure we're going deeper. We understand that we need need more than what is often accepted in the culture, the Christmas time. So here is something in the book of Hebrews to keep in mind as we go through this Christmas season, because here's what Jesus had to say about entering into our life, entering into the world when that day happened in that first century. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, this is Jesus speaking, before he was the word made flesh. When he cometh into the world, he saith to the Father, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. New Living Translation said, When Christ came into the world, he said to God, You did not want animal sacrifices, but you have given me a body to offer. Beautiful. That's the real meaning of Christmas. That's the message, and that's why we walk in the hope day to day. As Hebrews goes on, the writer compares Jesus to everything else in the universe. And he says, there is no comparison. And then he goes on to say, the old covenant, it had beauty, but it didn't cleanse a conscience, and it didn't change a heart. And so Jesus then said, you know, no more sacrifices as in the old covenant. Thou, O God, hast prepared a body for me to be that one final sacrifice once for all. So people can be delivered from sin, fear of death, the oppression of the devil. Paul Clemente said it well, the manger is empty, the cross is empty, the tomb is empty, so that our hearts may be filled with love, peace, and joy. About 60 years ago, Martin Seligman coined the phrase, learned helplessness. You remember the studies from psychology. He would take a collar, put it on a dog, ring a bell, and then administer a mild shock to the dog. 
eventually just ringing the bell would cause the dog to respond. And then he took that same dog and he put it in a crate. And on one side of the crate, there was a pad where he could deliver another shock. And on the other side of the crate, there was nothing. To his surprise, when he put the dog in and he gave it the electrical shock, it laid down. It could have jumped to the other side of the crate or even out of the crate. To his surprise, it laid down. It gave up. And the reason is because previously it had been shocked and now it thought, well, there's no escape from the shock. So it didn't try. And he coined that term learned helplessness when our past holds us down so much we don't even try. Now, when he put a different dog in the crate that had never been shocked, when he pushed the button, delivered the shock, that dog immediately jumped out of the crate. But the ones that had previously had the shock thought there's no point in even trying. And that's what we find often even in our own lives psychologically. People get stuck in the past and they think, what is the reason to even try again? We're going to look at somebody in David's life that was in that place of learned helplessness until David elevated them out of that place. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, we meet this man. We're told simply, Jonathan had a son who was lame in both feet. David and Jonathan had been best friends for life. Jonathan's father was King Saul. Saul and David did not get along, but Jonathan and David made a lifelong commitment to take care of each other and each other's families. Unfortunately, Jonathan dies in battle. David writes a song mourning that loss. And now back to 2 Samuel, we're told David, or excuse me, Jonathan had a son who was lame in both feet. And we're told why. When he was five years old, his nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. She was running away because there was a war coming. And in panic, she tried to flee the house and she dropped the child. He became lame. Then we're told simply this. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Hold on to that name for a moment. That name means to breathe shame. To breathe shame. Learned helplessness is defined as not trying to get out of a negative situation because the past has taught you that you are helpless. We're going to see in the promise when Jesus said, no more sin offerings, but thou hast prepared a body for me to be that final offering. We're never helpless. Any moment we can change one of two things, our life condition, the circumstances, and if we can't change that, we can always change in a moment our blueprints, our perception of life, what something means. Let me give you a personal example. A few days ago, a friend called me. We have another friend in common. And these two, a few years ago, had a falling out where they got into a very heated argument. And there was some alcohol involved. So this increased the tension. And they eventually got into threatening each other physically. Though things never did get physical. This man on the phone had told me, I've apologized to the other person and they just hang up the phone or return my letters when I've tried to contact them that way. They went on to say, you know, when I did get them on the phone, I tried to talk to them and say, you know what, I apologize for what I did, but you need to apologize for what you did. And this person on the phone was upset because not only did the other person not receive their apology, 
But as they said, they wouldn't take ownership for their part in the argument. And as I explained to this man on the phone, I said, you've already lost. Because your belief is life is about keeping score. And you feel helpless because you're trying to change this other person and control them. And you can't do that. And when it comes to grace, it's either something that you give without expecting or asking anything in return, or you don't try to offer that grace. Because real grace is when you offer it, you ask nothing in return. And you're upset because the other person won't respond like you want when true grace is just saying, I give this to you, I have no expectation. As we said before, trade your expectation for appreciation And in a moment, you can find something to be grateful for instead of being caught up maybe in the past, caught up in the life like Mephibosheth that you will see carried that name, though he didn't need to, all of his life, breathing shame. It wasn't about his disability. It was about what he sensed in his own mind. And as I told this man on the phone, you can't always keep score. Because keeping score, who owes you, who owes me, it's the path of darkness. I love Anidia Jiri's statement. There is only one solution to the world's problems, your transformation. Let me give you an example from Psalm 105. This is David singing a song about the children of Israel being delivered out of Egypt. Notice here what he says. Psalm 105, verse 37. He brought them forth out of Egypt with silver and gold. There was not one feeble person among their tribes. Egypt always represents sin. Being delivered out of Egypt means being delivered out of sin. Being delivered out of sin and oppression and bondage. From enslavement to freedom. And when they left Egypt, they left behind sickness in their poverty and that enslaving mindset of being trapped and unable to find the life that is truly life. And I love the statement here that was written by Daniel Sanders as we enter into this Christmas season. The year's not over yet. There's still a few days of this year left. And so, perhaps to stop and think for a moment... What is a bondage you want to leave behind? What is a bondage I want to leave behind? And as we enter into the promises of Advent and then into the year before us, what is it we see our life in Christ being as we embrace more and more the promise? For this reason, He was given a body to be a sacrifice so that we can be free indeed. As Sanders says, when they crossed the border of Egypt, to the promised land, they left their sickness back there. They left their weakness back there. They left bad memories back there. They left poverty back there. God is ready to bring you out just like he did for them. They came out happy. They came out blessed. They came out with goodness and mercy following them. They came out with purpose tied to goodness, destiny tied to mercy. The year is not over yet. So that brings us back to Mephibosheth, breathing shame. It's not his only name. Uh, 1 Chronicles 9.40 tells us 
he also was named Merib Baal. And Merib Baal is a strong name. It means the destroyer of idols. It's a name with honor and dignity. Why did he not go by that name? Again, there was a mindset that trapped him into going by Mephibosheth. He could have been known as the destroyer of idols, but instead he held on to the bondage of Egypt and continued to be known as breathing shame. But there's beauty in his story because he also represents our old self. We also at one time were breathing shame, sin, destroyed our life. We also were lame in our feet. Sin, the consequences had left us broken and wounded. Until one day, in a quiet place, we met the Master face to face. 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's years later and Jonathan has died. David, though, remembers something very specific. And in verse 1, we're told this. David asked, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? I can show kindness and notice for Jonathan's sake. Is there anybody left in Saul's family? I can show kindness to. Why? For Jonathan's sake. Hold on to that statement and we'll see it again in just a moment. They send for Mephibosheth. And they say, Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, is alive. He's lame in his feet, but we know where he is. And David says, send for him immediately. And when Mephibosheth shows up at the palace, he's frightened. And we're told David looks at him and says this, verse 7, Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness. And notice again, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Why does he say that? Well, he and Jonathan made a covenant. And that covenant was more than just an agreement. It's a binding contract. And they said, I'll be your best, most loyal friend for life. And I'll take care of you. You take care of me. We'll take care of each other's families. And so when David looks back, he said, I made a covenant, a lifelong agreement with Jonathan to honor his family. And I want to do that very thing. What's the picture being painted? Well, one day, in that first century, as Jesus proclaimed, for this reason thou gave me a body. Born in a manger, under a new covenant, on our behalf, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And because of that covenant, the Father looks on that and says, I will honor you because I honor the covenant in my son's name. And we, like Mephibosheth, have the lame feet and breathing shame. And then the king looks at us and says, because of the covenant in Christ, notice what happens next, the rest of verse 7. David said to Mephibosheth, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you'll always be welcome at my table. We as well enter in to that throne room. The Father looks on us and says, Because of the covenant in my Son, you're no longer breathing shame. I give you a new name. I give you a new life. 
I restore to you the promise that all is yes and amen in Christ. And you're always welcome at my table. As Jesus says in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if you open the door, I will come in and we will eat together. Eating represents family, loyalty, and blessing. So what did David say that Peter repeated Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2, verse 25, the crowds gather asking Peter about this Jesus of Nazareth in this empty tomb. And here's what he said. Remember what David said about him. May it be our own prayer as we move through this Christmas season. Here's what David said. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be moved. And we see the Lord always before us. Know He is at our right hand. Because of that, no matter what takes place in our life, may we simply know we shall not be shaken. There is no learned helplessness in the kingdom. That's the old mindset of Mephibosheth. We are no longer breathing shame. We are no longer made lame by sin. We are sons and daughters in a royal kingdom by a royal Christ because of a covenant He made with us by His grace. Therefore, we shall not be moved. And now, may we understand a little bit more. Hebrews 10.5, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body hast thou prepared for me. Perhaps now we understand a little bit more deeply. When Mary heard the promise, her own response, Luke chapter 1. The angel said unto Mary, Fear not, you have found favor with God. You will bring forth a son, You will call his name Jesus. And Mary said, My soul magnifies you, O Lord, my God. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He who is mighty has done great things for me. His mercy flows from generation to generation. Holy is His name. In His strength, He will scatter the proud. In His strength, He will bring down the mighty and exalt the humble. From His abundance, He will fill the hungry. In His mercy, He will save us. My soul magnifies you, Almighty God. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1.